Well, we'll get started, and um, let me open us with prayer, and then we'll go to Revelation chapter 1 again. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to have uh, words from you, and as we listen to John tell us about this vision and think about the significance of it, and the... um, application of these matters to our own lives and to our own thinking, I ask that you would use the book of Revelation to make us more diligent, more hopeful, more consistent, uh, more realistic disciples of yours. Uh, And we ask that that design uh, that I think you've placed in it would be carried out in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Initially, when I started uh, this week's lesson, I thought that I would try to make it all the way to the end of the chapter, but then rethought that and uh, and didn't try to do that because then we would have just had to uh, skip over a few of the things that I think are worth pausing over in uh, in these uh, verses nine to sixteen. So let me just read, to start with, Revelation 1, 9 to 16. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that is in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God, The testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Um, This outline that I hand out is what, uh, there's nothing creative uh, about it, or particularly insightful it's it's what you might is is usually termed 
simply an exegetical outline. That is, it, it merely points out what's there in the passage. That is just designed to help us walk through uh, this particular passage of Scripture and see the points that John is uh, is making along the way. And uh, one of the things we're going to do a little bit of today again, I referred to it a couple weeks ago when we started, right, when we mentioned the fact that um, according to the editors of the uh, Nestle-Alan Greek New Testament series, their committee, they think that in the book of Revelation there are 635 allusions made to the Old Testament. Um, uh, Not necessarily quotations, though there's plenty of quotations as well, but 635 allusions to the Old Testament. And as the visions start to unfold, it, it's it's worthwhile to at least illustrate a little bit the kind of thing that they're talking about and and how it's supposed to work and what's significant about it and hopefully what uh, we'll find helpful about it. Uh, but again, so verse 9 to start, I, John, your brother... And fellow sharer in the tribulation and kingdom and patience in Jesus. So John introduces himself once again. Remember, we argued this is the same John that writes the gospel, this is the same John that writes the epistles. Um, So John introduces himself, and the first thing he does is connect himself to the audience, uh, to his first century audience, and uh, ultimately to us. Because remember, the, the notion of how this works in a very symbolic book is you got two things going on at once all the time. There's really seven churches there in the first century that he's writing to. And they have very, very specific problems. And he is actually addressing those very specific problems that they have. But under this assumption, uh, he chooses seven rather than eight or nine or five because seven has symbolic significance. Uh, seven is a way of talking about totality. So these, these seven individual churches represent all the churches of the first century who all have problems roughly like this and also represent all the churches, you know, down the ages right through to the present age. You know, so, uh, you know, a congregation in Sioux Falls has problems and challenges and spiritual connections that are identical to what we find in these churches and in this connection. 
And right off the top, uh, as he connects with us as the readers, he gives us the sense of this. Um, So I've got on your outline, John introduces himself to us yet again. Number one, or first bullet point under that, including the unique nature of his connection with us. Now, grammatically, there's something unique that happens here. It happens elsewhere, but it's fairly unique to string together these three terms under one definite article. So in the Greek New Testament, you can write the equivalent of the word the, and then you attach it, not only to the word that directly comes after it, like we would, the door, uh, but you can connect it to a whole list of things, which is what he does here. And by doing that, he means us to understand that these three things are really tightly related to each other, and they're really intermingled with each other. You know, this. so the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patience. The tribulation the kingdom, and the patience. Uh, John 16, 33 that I cite there is that very familiar text, right, where he just says to the disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, Living in this present age, you will have tribulation. Even though... You will live through the present age as actually belonging to the kingdom of God. Uh, so you got tribulation even while you're in the kingdom of God. Uh, and related to that, therefore, you're going to need a great deal of patience, uh, long suffering. Uh, these things are all blended together in our experience. You know, so uh, uh, it's a little bit like we were talking about in the uh, message last hour. You, know, you don't want to be guilty of having an over-realized eschatology, right? I'm a kingdom child. I'm a child of the king. Through Jesus, my Savior, I'm a child of the king. And that means that I'm on top of the world all the time. But, of course, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, And the children of God have never been on top of the world all the time. They have lots of disappointments and lots of setbacks and lots of need of things like patience, long-suffering, all tied up with that word. And so John has that in common with us. Um, He's a member of the kingdom. He's a disciple. But he knows about tribulation. And he knows about the need of patience. And he knows about these things. Notice, in Jesus. In Jesus. Which would be a lot like saying, in Christ, in the sphere of Christ, in the, in the sphere of those who belong 
to King Jesus. And he goes right to one of the trials. So including the unique nature of connections with us, including the location of the vision. The island of Patmos. Um, Some of you have probably uh, been to that part of the world. How many have traveled to that part of the world and sailed by such places? Anybody in here? Okay, I know some people of church have. They've been there uh, through the, you know, that piece of the Aegean Sea off of the coast of Asia. The Isle of Patmos is a volcanic island. It's mostly rock. It's about, they say, uh, it's about six miles wide, ten miles long. Um, uh, not uh, not a vacation paradise um, they sent uh, exiled prisoners out there to keep them from calling, causing trouble. And that's what John is doing out there. He's out there because of a message. He's out there because he was saying certain things. And the, uh, the certain things that he was saying were simply along this line. Jesus is Israel's Messiah, which means ultimately he'll turn out to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, that was not okay to say in the Roman Empire of the first century. Um, There's a political environment there that is built up, and by the end of the first century, though they may not yet in any sense believe that the emperor is God, they do believe uh, that it's good politics to say really, really nice things about the emperor and how important he is and how wise he is and how powerful he is and that you sort of establish it as the cultural norm to only say nice things about the emperor And also, to be certain, never to say anything like, maybe the emperor's not actually number one. Maybe Caesar could be answerable to somebody else. Well, this is what Christians believed. Uh, They believed that the emperor really wasn't number one, and that he would turn out, in the end, to be answerable to somebody else. That was not okay. It's not okay. Now, we're in roughly the same place today. Uh, not so much that, you know, we, you know, we can say pretty much what we like uh, about President Biden Uh, at least for now, or former President Trump, or things like that. Our politics don't work quite like that. But what would be pretty similar is, if, if you get up and say, you know what, you actually can't rewrite, you can't rewrite, um, Sexual ethical codes. You can't do that. Those are fixed by God. 
So categories of male and female, those are fixed by God. You can't just dismiss them. Uh, No, we don't agree that they're just a, a cultural construct. They're not a cultural construct. They're part of a created order. Well, it's not okay to say that in American politics anymore. You don't go to jail yet, but it's, it's, it's not okay to say that. Uh, and if you say that out loud, you're unlikely to be elected to much. Because that can really effectively be used against you. If you are on the record and somebody can quote you saying such things out loud, that's where they live. That's the Roman Empire. And we live in something, you know, we live in really the American Empire, where our culture has been the, uh, we don't dominate the world and that we're not running around and putting everybody obviously under our feet. But culturally speaking, we've dominated the world for, uh, for a century almost, for more than half a century at least, since, since World War II for sure. Um, and, and culturally speaking, we continue to do that. And suddenly and increasingly, right, Christians find themselves outside the mainstream of that dominant cultural messaging. And that's all that was going on here. It's, it's generally always like that um, uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, and you notice how it's described here. He is on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which really is almost said in apposition with one another. The word of God is, in its ultimate expression, the testimony of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, uh, we, we referred to it this morning in the morning service. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so the word of God is the Old Testament in their minds. And Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus, is his announcement of himself as Israel's Messiah, as the fulfillment of, uh, of the Old Testament. I don't come to abolish the law, but that um, the law finds its fulfillment in me. And as earlier, uh, the idea here, the word of God, probably supposed to be taken simultaneously. Uh, Greg Beale, in his commentary on Revelation, he likes this idea. He's persuaded uh, me of it. Uh, um, he, Dan, uh, a grammarian by the name of Daniel Wallace, espouses this and has given uh, uh, Beale some um, confidence in thinking that uh, this Daniel Wallace has it right, uh, that you know, usually you, you, you try to decide, and many commentators, several of the commentators I have, no, they say you can't do that. You have to decide. So the word of God either means it's the word that comes from God, or it means it's the word that's about God. It has one of those two emphases. Same with Jesus. It's either the testimony 
that comes from Jesus, or it's the testimony that's about Jesus. you got to choose, lay down your money, take your choice. That's the way it is. And Daniel Wallace came along and said, and, and, and a grammarian, a Roman Catholic grammarian by the name of Maximilian Zerwick, uh, a couple of generations earlier, said the same thing. Now, now, I think sometimes you're supposed to take it in both senses at once. Uh, Wallace gave it the neat little title that, uh, that I like, that Beale likes, uh, plenary gener- genitive. That is, it goes in several directions at once, this genitive. So it's simultaneously the word about God and a word from God. It's simultaneously the testimony of Jesus, and it's about Jesus. Um, And that's what this opening vision is going to turn out to be really, really focused in on, but we'll have a couple of stops to make before we get there. But the opening vision is all about this question, how significant is Jesus? How big a deal is Jesus? Um, And spiritual survival is thought to hang on our answer to that that question. But first, we'll go on to verse 10. He's in the Spirit, and I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. So our including, including the unique nature of our connections, including the location of the vision, including the circumstances of the vision. And I was in the spirit. That is, the spirit of God had taken hold of John. And he did it on the Lord's Day, which probably means Sunday. Commentators argue about this, but it's probably Sunday. It certainly became Sunday down through uh, the age, and I think this is one of the earliest references to it. Uh, and, and that, and, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not a coincidence that you would think that here. That is in the context The whole first vision is about to be about just how magnificent Jesus is and thereby what a difference he makes and thereby how transformative something like the resurrection of Jesus is to be understood to be. Um, And this is where you know, traditions can either be tremendously meaningful and helpful and keep us alive and vital, or they can do what they're 87.5% more likely to do, which is to put us to sleep um, on an issue. And so, so here we are 
you know, it's a Sunday, and that's why we're together, um, and we are uh, having a adult Sunday school class because it's a Sunday, and we have those classes on Sunday because we've always had them on Sunday. And we come to church on Sunday, and it's, it's one day in seven. Um, but the real significance from the beginning is why they believe they switched over from the Jewish Sabbath to a different day of the week was primarily because Sunday marked the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the inbreaking of the kingdom. And so by meeting on Sunday, uh, you announce um, not very gently uh, to the Jewish community to start with around you in the first century that your Messiah has arrived and it's Jesus. Now, it's mostly Jewish people themselves that are announcing this. Our Messiah has arrived and it's Jesus. And God raised him from the dead on a Sunday. And so we worship him on Sunday. You see how much different the tradition works if you think of it this way. We go and worship on Sunday because we're resurrection people. We're people who are indwelt already, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, with the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And he raised him from the dead on a Sunday. And that's why we worship on Sunday. Because the resurrected Lord uh, began to be resurrected king on a Sunday morning. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven and he's reigned from there ever since. And of course, decades have gone by by the time John shares this vision. Um, So including the circumstances of the visions followed by including the experience of receiving the vision. And this is really simple. He just hears a voice. He hears a great voice from behind him. He can't see anything. He hears a great voice behind him. And then he turns around. He turns around and receives a series of specific instructions. And that's verse 11, including these specific instructions. That which you see, write into a little book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so that's, his, that's, a, he said, that's why you're receiving this. 
This is what happened. This is what happened. Uh, We are bound together, you and I, in this common tribulation and kingdom and patience. And I am writing to tell you about what I was shown. Um, so that takes us to the, uh, to the vision itself, uh, Revelation 1, 12 to 16. Uh, verse 12 tells us first how John came to see it. And I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. Now, this is a little speculative. See, now, they're, they're, no, no, nobody claimed this. Nobody claimed this. Uh, but they don't claim, by any means, all of the 635 that they're thinking about. But th- those of you, those of you who, um, um, well, just turn with me over. You, uh, Revel- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, only one piece of this fits very well, and the rest of it doesn't, because he's about to see a vision, but really it fits better than you think, uh, because there's lots of thunder and lightning and everything going on here. So the Lord spoke, verse 12, from the Lord spoke unto you from the midst of the fire a voice. You are hearing words. And you were not seeing any image, only a voice, only a voice. Now, don't forget, there's fire and all those things are, are there. And so in this sense, it differs greatly from what's about to happen here. But what's striking is he uses this kind of language that the Septuagint used there in Deuteronomy 4.12. He hears a voice behind him. He only hears a voice. And then when he sees, when he turns to see who the voice comes from, He doesn't so much exactly get to see that, except by implication. What he gets is a vision. He gets a vision, uh, a vision of Jesus. So he turns to see the voice. And having turned, he saw this vision. And then verses 12b, back to Revelation 1, is simply the vision of what he sees. And it's, it's pretty simple. It's in pretty simple terms, except that this, for certain, is a little bit like what we were talking about across the way this morning, where these images of what he sees... You don't understand what you're seeing 
unless they link for you to certain Old Testament passages. They're designed to do that. Uh, And if you don't let that happen, then you can't follow what he's really getting at. Uh, And what he's getting at is crucial to everything that he has to say. Uh, Because the essence of this is all wrapped up in that text we referred to earlier this morning, right? Matthew 5, 13. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I am the fulfillment of everything that you find in the law and the prophets. And if you think that means, okay, there's a half a dozen places where, you know, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Bingo, he was. No, that's not what he means primarily. What he, he, that he, that's included. It's not less than that. It's just a ton, a ton more than that. Um, and so we'll start with uh, the golden lampstands. Um, we, we looked at, well, let, let, we'll go to, let's go Exodus 25, 36. Exodus 25, 36. And their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. What he's describing is the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand that is going to be placed inside the tabernacle. The place of the presence of God. So he turns around And he sees this golden lampstand. Now, Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 4, where we'll go next, Zechariah is already doing the same thing that John is now doing. Zechariah is looking back at Exodus 25 as well. And in Zechariah chapter 4, he opens with that whole sequence of this detailed description of this lampstand and how the oil gets into it. And the oil turns out to be the Holy Spirit. But just in verse 2, and he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on it, seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. Um, So he's seen this lampstand in the holy place, in the holy of holies. He's seen this lampstand there. Uh, and John says, this is the first thing I, I noticed is that I see uh, that Jesus is standing 
in the midst. And this lampstand, she's made out of seven lamps. Uh, So when you describe it there in the book of Exodus, when you describe it elsewhere, it's got seven seven piece candelabra. And he turns and he sees it, and it's made of pure gold. It's tremendously valuable. And uh, and he sees, he sees these golden lampstands back to Revelation chapter one. And I turned and I saw, and I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. And having turned, notice he didn't see the voice. That's very much like Deuteronomy. He didn't see the voice. What he saw was a vision. Seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. Now this is a reference we mentioned last week. This is a clear-cut reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And so let's go there this time and we'll look at that. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Um, and the uh, I made reference last week to the fact that the uh, the book of Revelation they estimate refers to Daniel 7 um, 13 and 14 31 times uh, so it's uh uh, it, it's 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 pretty significant uh, what uh, what you read there, and we already saw it referred to um, back in verse seven of chapter one. This is the statement that he draws out of Daniel seven thirteen, and behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Uh, that is, behold. Um, this Jesus comes like God is depicted as coming, Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, in the book of Daniel. Um, and here we are, we're, we're, we're picking it up, and then he goes on to start to describe pieces of this um, vision that are also found elsewhere in Daniel. So suddenly, uh, Daniel starts to dominate the landscape. Um, And so, uh, here we go. So first, Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Then we'll jump over to 10. But here it is. And I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one 
like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's a grand statement of who this is if this is Jesus. So you turn around, he sees one like the Son of Man standing there. We've already been told, this, this, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, yes. He's this person from Daniel 7? Dominion, never going to end. Over Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Another vision of Daniel. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like a flaming torch. His arms and legs are like the green, burnished bronze. Pictures of the same. Pictures of the same thing. So all of these images from Daniel are sprinkled throughout Revelation 1, 13 and 14 in expounding this vision. Now to get the sense, to get the sense of how this would have been seen and understood in the first century, just go over with me, you'll see I make reference to it. Matthew 26 59 to 66. Matthew 26, verses 59 to 66. Trial of Jesus. And the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the whole Sanhedrin, they were seeking false witness against Jesus in order that they may kill him. But they were not finding many witnesses, false witnesses coming forward. But later, uh, two came forward. And this one said, I am able to break down the temple of God and after three days to build it. And the high priest, having ascended, said to him, that is to Jesus, Nothing do you answer about what these think what these are bearing witness against you? And Jesus was silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. I forget whether it was Don or Terry that was teaching that day, who talked about oaths from the book of Deuteronomy. This was a way of placing him under an oath that if he wanted to be a law abiding Israelite, which he did. He couldn't ignore. So I adjure you, you, now you take this oath and tell the truth as it is required of you in the law. And so Jesus does. He does. And Jesus said, um, 
And he quotes, he quotes from Daniel 7.13. I say to you, from now on, verse 64, you shall see the Son of Man sitting from the right hand of the power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now notice in Matthew 26, the high priest knows exactly what he's claiming and responds. Then the high priest tore his garments, saying, he blasphemes. Why still do we have need of witnesses? Behold, you heard the blasphemy. You can't claim to be the person of, in view in in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. That's ridiculous. Now, don't miss this. It really would have seemed ridiculous to them, right? Remember what it says about the person um, in Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and presented himself there. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, Jesus is under arrest. He's just standing there waiting to see what they're going to do with him. How absurd to say, I'm this glorious king with an everlasting dominion. Who do you claim to be? I claim to be that. I claim to be that. The high priest had been discipled by my dad, he would have said at this point, oh, for crying out loud. Oh, for crying out loud. You can't. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And so it seemed at that trial. Now, John was there. He watched all these things. But now John, in this vision, he sees, he sees Jesus. Uh, another, another image just pulled out of uh, Revelation. The vision, uh, the, uh, his voice is like the sound of many waters. Ezekiel. Ezekiel 124. Opening vision of God, of course, in Ezekiel and the voice that Ezekiel hears. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters. Vision of God like the sound of the Almighty. 
a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. You see the significance of this, this language. Jesus is the guy from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus is the God being depicted in Ezekiel 1. His voice is like the sound of many waters. Jesus is, in other words, unbelievably significant. It doesn't seem to be that. It doesn't seem to be that. We'll come back to that in just a moment for you know, where, we, where we live and where we are right now and how we experience um, these things. Um, I first saw the Pacific Ocean in 1972, um, we were on our way moving to uh, Thetis Island, British Columbia, which was an island, as I've said before, just five miles east off the coast of Vancouver Island. Um, uh, and so we went to live on an island when I was about to see uh, salt water for the first time in my life. And we... Uh, uh, a guy from Wonder Lake had become uh, uh, a, uh, a sheriff out in Washington. Uh, they were having trouble, apparently, uh, getting people to be in law enforcement even 50 years ago. And so they, they hired him, and he went out, and he was uh, a sheriff uh, in this particular uh, locale. Uh, centered in this village, which was right on the coast in Washington. I can't remember the name of the town. Uh, but they had, they had a seawall uh, built across to give them just a little bit of a, a harbor. Uh, there was no natural harbor uh, by this town. So they had sort of built one, as places along there do, out of these great big... Uh, rocks to give themselves something of a a seawall of protection, and it was a uh, it was a really windy day that day, uh, very gray, misting on and off. And I remember my dad and I walking down there, and you couldn't even you couldn't really even talk to each other uh, without yelling because you know the swells were you know, six to ten feet high, and they're just crashing over the top of this seawall continually, just ripping. And you just hear, you just hear this dull roar. Well, they had heard this kind of thing at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. They knew of this big roar of how impressive and daunting the sound of water can be when it's smashing into rock. And, and that's the image. Uh, the voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters, which is his way of simply saying it was the voice of God. His voice was the voice of God. He sees, verse 16a, sees these stars in his hand, Stars turn out to be angels, and so um, we're told here that Jesus is 
not only in the midst of, as we'll see in the next vision, he's not only in the midst of these churches, these seven gold lamps, but he's, he's got angels in his hand. In other words, he's the, he's the Lord of heaven and of earth. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, which is the language, you know, that we have in the Great Commission, right? Said under, not a grand vision or anything. It's just Jesus talking to the disciples. But remember what Jesus says to his disciples just as he gets ready to leave. He refers to himself as having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, that's the vision here. That's the picture. He's got these stars from heaven, these angels in his hand, heaven and earth. He's Lord all, he's Lord over everything. Heaven and earth in his hand. He's got this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. If you look up Isaiah 11, 1 to 5, we don't have time now to do that because I want to refer to the last oddest image in a sense, but in that sense it becomes the most uh, pregnant sort of in the whole sequence because of where where John is thinking in the Old Testament. But we, this is this is pieces of Jesus, right, that we start to experience. And I, I mean, I made reference to this last week, right? So Jesus, his, he's got this sword coming out of his mouth. It's a sword. What does that mean? Well, it means that things are as Jesus says they are. Things that he condemns, they're just flat condemned. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. If he says you're really not the ultimate king, you're really not the ultimate king. If he says that you really don't get to decide what sexual ethics are, then you don't get to decide what sexual ethics are. And if if he says you're condemned for ignoring him, then you're condemned for ignoring him. That's a double-edged sword. Uh, In other words, he's nothing like like our politicians who are forever talking about things they don't mean. They're forever making claims about things that are never going to come to pass. They're forever going on and on about this and that, and it all never comes to anything. He's nothing like that. Whatever he says is exactly how it's going to be. And if he pronounces judgment on you, you're judged. And that's where, of course, his people get into trouble. Because what do we do? Well, we're supposed to re-say what he says. We're supposed to just re-say what he says. Knowing who he is. Let's just run to the last image and then I'll give you a chance to uh, ask uh, questions um, about how far we've gone so far. But uh, so back to Revelation 1, 16. 
Revelation 1.16. The last image is the most complicated one, uh, though for that reason, and it, re- and it requires you, a, you got, I'm going to give you a homework assignment related to it, and then you'll, uh, you'll get the sense of uh, how John thinks about the Old Testament as he uses these, these images. The last thing it says about him is his face shone as the sun in all its power. His face shone as the sun in all its power. And if you have a Bible with cross-references, uh, I didn't check this in the ESV, but I suspect it might uh, be there. It's in, it's in all of the editions of the Greek New Testament. They're constantly setting the references that he's making off to the side. And in this case, it's Judges 5.31. Judges 5.31. And if you go to Judges 5, what you'll find is that Judges 5 is a chapter-long poem. It is the Song of Deborah. It's the Song of Deborah. Chapter-long poem. Uh, now, to understand what the poem is saying, you have to read the chapter in front of it. Because <laughs> the poem just retells the story that was told in Genesis 4, which is the rise of Deborah as judge, and how she uh, conquers uh, the Canaanites and, uh, and, and gets Israel out from under their thumb. Uh, and you remember her general, uh, General Barrett comes to her and says, no, no, Deborah, you need to be our leader. Uh, please be our leader. And then Deborah warns him, warns him, well, okay, but you're not going to like it because in the end, when we get victory, a woman is going to get credit for the victory. But she didn't think Barrett would be all that excited about um, uh, but but this is where this is where the real irony enters, right? Because by the end of the story, it's definitely a woman that gets credit for the victory. But it's not Deborah. It's not Deborah. No, overall, it's still Deborah. She did oversee the whole operation. But but as they rout their enemies, and this you know the great general takes off. And he is running, and he hides in a woman's tent, uh, J.L. And, uh, and then you remember J.L. receives him, and she gives him uh, something to drink. Uh, and then she hides him under a rug, and he says, if somebody comes by asking for me, say that you haven't seen me. Oh, yes, that's what I'll do. And then, you know, there he is under the rug, and then J.L. carefully goes, and and moves beside him and, and lightly sets uh, a, uh, a, a, a peg like a, uh, on his head and then just wham and, uh, and, and sends that stake through his temple. And he's dead. And that's the end of the story. Um, that's the end of the story. 
But as the story is retold in the poem, the final verse is what John's referring to. The final verse is what John is referring to. Um, So may all of your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun. S-U-N. He rises in all his might. All the scholars are saying, as John says, his face shone like a like a like the sun. He's given you a homework assignment. Judges five thirty one. Judges five thirty one. Well, what would that have to say to them? Oh, that would have a lot to say to them. People of God, as they end, in, as they as they head into Judges chapter four, hopeless situation. Canaanites running roughshod over them, treated like dirt, brutal enemies. Oh, that's right where the Christians feel like they are in the first century. Yes, sure is. Very similar. Very similar. This last little picture, the image, the image goes there. His face shone like the sun. God will take care of you. The way he took care of Israel. Oh, you see all these powerful, brutal people. Massively powerful, dangerous, they sure are. Don't they remind you of Sisera? Oh, yeah, massively powerful. The poem ends with Sisera's, you know, uh, mother looking for him to arrive when he's not coming. Oh, my son, yeah, no, he's probably, he's probably mopping up, you know, it's the part where they rape the women and take the spoil. That's what's going on now. Yep, now he's a little late. He's getting a little carried on with the raping, maybe. That's what she thinks. But he's actually dead in a tent with a stake through his head. It's tremendously ironic. It's nothing like she thought. And in John's vision, he said, and when you look around, it's nothing like they think. Reality is nothing like the Roman Empire thinks it is. This is reality. People of God, powerful Jesus, King of kings, dominion forever. This is your king. Now, we don't have time for questions again. But next week, <laughs> next week, it's going to be, it's going to be remarkable. <laughs>